four, three, two, one, zero, and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hello, everyone. I'm in Sydney today with designer, writer, and illustrator Zoe Sadakirsky. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. So I have your... Uh, your bio here on my phone. So for those of you who think I'm a Luddite, I'm actually using technology here uh, in, in the best of ways. But you are, you've designed over 250 books for various publishers, which is astounding. Um, you've been awarded six times at the Australian Book Design Awards. You're a lecturer at the School of Design at the University of Technology, uh, where you also run a research studio investigating the evolution of books in the digital age, which is, we could probably just do an interview on that alone. And uh, you also write a column on book culture and reading at The Conversation, and you are the president of the Australia Book Design Designers Association, which is, um, that's quite a resume. It is quite a resume, yeah. So in your, in your own words, um, tell us what, who you are and what you do. Um, I guess I'm a book designer and book lover. Um, I'm a reader, first and foremost. I've always been a reader. Um, and when I started getting interested in design, um, books seemed like the most appropriate place for me to go. So I worked as an in-house book designer for a number of years at a commercial publisher until I left that to pursue my own things. I guess I wanted a little bit more freedom in the kind of books that I worked on and what I did with those books. So I've been working um, as an academic but also as a freelance designer for a number of years and I'm really interested in self-publishing and I'm really interested in what's happening in the book design world and I guess the democracy of publishing what we're actually able to do now with technology mm -hmm. that we weren't able to do five ten years ago and so when I see design illustration and you also write what which one of those wins out uh, at the end of the day um, it's a difficult question and if you asked me on different days I'd probably have different answers but um, my mum was an English teacher and my dad was an art teacher so oh, um, yeah I kind of grew up in a house with a love of both word and image and for a long time I thought I had to choose one team or the other and I guess I denied my writing side for quite a long time when I chose to study design at university and I remember at the time being really frustrated when a lecturer said to us well, none of you can write because you're designers. Oh, yeah. And I remember being incredibly offended and thinking this is a really difficult degree to get into. And obviously people who are interested in design are also literate. Um, it's, it's not like you're just into pictures or you're into words. But I did think that I had to choose a team at one stage. And since I um, shifted from being a full-time professional designer to making my own agenda, I started writing a lot more. And I, I guess that's my less developed skill professionally but I'm kind of equally passionate about both mm. and that's why I love book design in particular because almost always apart from a wordless picture book almost always you're working with word and image together. And so how do you how do you manage to do three things at the same time is there a certain pattern that you pattern your day I was with someone yesterday who said they get up at five in the morning they read for the first hour then they start their design before they go to work is there a pattern that you live by or is it completely and utterly random it's pretty random but I think it's it's project based it depends what I'm working on at the time so 
I guess everything I do is always content driven. So in in a design sense, if someone comes to me with a project that they want me to do, say it's a book, um, I don't decide how I want the thing to look until I've dealt with the content. So I obviously read the book first. Um, so I guess reading is somewhere that I start. Reading and looking is uh-huh. where I start first. So external before I go internal. That's interesting. I think um, that's one thing that I've seen consistently through creative people is the consumption of of, of reading of, of books all across the board. Is there do you, is there a certain pattern to what kind of books do you read? Is it design heavy books or you read everything? I think it's important to to read broadly. I I do read some design books, but I guess I probably my design inspiration comes more looking at things. I mean, I look at Pinterest a lot because lots of people curate their Pinterest boards um, or other design sites. I mean, I, I really enjoy things like Brain Pickings, which mm. Maria, Maria Popova, Popova, I yeah. mean, she's just an incredibly brilliant mind. And she actually has gone through everything that I might be interested in reading and sort of <laughs> summarized it for me. So I, I read novels and I read essays, um, but looking is a different thing. I don't read design books as much as I think people might expect. Um, yeah. But I think influence can come from so many different places. I think uh, and inspiration comes from so many different places. A lot of times people will ask, like, how did you come up with this story? And I'll say I heard a song or I read a book that yeah. sort of, you know, alerted me to that. Maria, I love brain pickings as well. And of all the people I've asked to do interviews, I, I was headed to New York and I thought, oh, I'm just going to like throw it out there. She's the only person that ever said no and uh, which I do not hold against her at all because I was like, oh, it's a long shot. She, to me, is like the, a curator at the highest level because when I see something on brain pickings, literally 99% of the time I'm like interested and it's delivered to me in the perfect way. I think it's one of the best websites out there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, I mean, I think people throw the word curator around a lot and it can be quite disrespectful to actual curators mm-hmm. because that's a profession. Sure. Um, and in the same way that, you know, just because you can use a design template doesn't mean you're a designer or I can use my um, iPhone and the filters on it to take a decent looking photo. It doesn't right. mean I'd claim to be a photographer. Yep. Um, but I think that the the way online media um, has allowed people who do have those curatorial skills to kind of come to the fore. I don't know where you would have found something like brain pickings 10 years ago. I'm not sure that I would have found that if it was a magazine or if it was any other form. But mm-hmm. the fact that I can actually, I can read it on my phone, I can read it on my computer. Um, people seem to be emailing me stuff from brain pickings quite a bit. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, and there's a few other things like that. I think podcasts are terrific as well. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I often find those really inspiring. So um, Radio Lab, which is a really geeky yeah. podcast, yeah, and I love, love it, it, but they're one on color. I mean, after listening to that, um, as I was just kind of walking around, I went and actually started doing a whole bunch of visual research on color um, based on some of the things that I'd listened to or learnt from there. So a podcast then gets me to go and start looking at stuff and then from looking at things. The reason I talk about Pinterest is that it's a way that I collect a whole bunch of my visual influences and at some point, um, a project will come up and I'll think I should go back and look at that color stuff that I was thinking about. So I, yeah, it's reading and looking to me are often quite, and listening are all intertwined and one will lead to the next. 
I the way that I get most of the the brain pickings comes through Twitter for me, and yeah. it's the yellow, the color of of I just flip through with my thumb, and the only thing I'm waiting for is a flash of yellow, and I know when I see the yellow that it's something I need to stop and pay attention to, which is a pretty amazing the control that it has over me. But let's go back a minute when you when you got into design and you first started design, were books on the radar, and then why ultimately did you settle on being primarily a book designer? Um, no, and I mean, weirdly enough, it it took me a really long time to realise that I wanted to be a designer. When I first went to uni, I enrolled in an advertising degree because I didn't really know design existed. Um, it hadn't occurred to me that that would be something that you would do, and I thought you had to go into advertising if you wanted to do kind of commercial art. Um, and then I did a year of advertising. I think I got to the ethics lecture and thought, I don't know that I can do this. <laughs> um, and my flatmate at the time was studying visual communication and I looked at what he was doing and what I was doing and I thought, I'm in the wrong degree. And when I switched over, this entire world kind of opened up and I think it was when I discovered typography, mm. which again, everyone knows what that is now. But when I was studying in, I guess, I think it was probably 1999, 2000, when I was first doing my degree, I looked at my class list for the semester and I, I read it really quickly and I thought it said topography and I thought, that's weird, are we doing map making? How strange. And then I got in and I was like, oh, typography, oh. but oh. So I was really new to it. But I think that's when I suddenly understood the importance of language because typography is just what language looks like. Mm -hmm. And that to me made design even more interesting. And I think that's when I, I started making books and playing around with stories and images together. But it, yeah, it took me a while to, it was applying for a job. Someone sent me um, a job ad for a book designer at Allen and Unwin and said, oh, you should apply for this. And I, I don't know why it had never occurred to me that it would be my dream job, but it was. And do you remember the first book that you designed professionally? Yeah, it's an abomination. And um, I show it to students in lectures and I say, this is the worst thing I've ever designed and I'd fail me on this. If any of you submit something like this, I'll fail you. It's terrible and here's why. Um, and basically, I wasn't strong enough to stand up to all the feedback that I was getting. So I was getting conflicting feedback from the marketing department and the sales department and the publishing department and... I just I kind of mushed all of their feedback together and made this terrible book cover. It was called The Couple's Guide to Money. I'm pretty sure it's out of print now, so I can say that. <laughs> see, but it see, was, see, yeah, it was yeah. terrible. And I was sort of trying to teach myself how to use Photoshop for illustration at the time. And it was a really bodgy illustration and the typography was terrible. And yeah, I just, I let myself get kind of bullied around, I guess. And it took a little while to um, find the confidence to be strong enough to stand up um, to other people's comments, but also to learn how to listen well. And so when someone would say, you know, maybe you could try this or I don't like that, learning to actually say, what do you mean by that? Or um, learning to um, draw out the feedback is, is a skill that you can't really learn at a college or a university. It's something that you have to learn on the job. And so going back to the abomination book yeah. and fast forwarding to today, how has your design changed through the years? And, and if, if we can, let's say we even reference decades, like yeah. you think, think back to certain books that you look at and say, oh, well, that's an 80s book or whatever. Mm -hmm. How has your design changed over the years? Um, I think it's the process that's changed more than anything. So as I was referencing then a little bit, it's, it's about me being in control of what I'm doing a lot more and knowing how to 
to get the best feedback out of people, um, to get the best uh, criticism out of people, but also to listen to what they're saying and respond to that in a way that makes me happy. So sometimes you have to shift what it is that you're working on. If you take everything everyone says literally, you end up with the abom abomination, mm -hmm. Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. Um, if you actually, if you, uh, if you trust yourself and trust that the years have gone by and you know how to do um, mock-ups quite quickly. So I know that I can I can cobble something together quite quickly that will look relatively close to what I want it to look like. Then once I get an idea approved, then I can finesse and fiddle. So I guess I'm, I'm more confident and I'm probably better with my technical skills now, which means that the idea in my head can actually be formed on the page a little bit better. How many different versions of software have you been through over the years? Because someone today was referencing PageMaker, and then we had Quark, and now we're at InDesign. I mean, it's probably been how many for you? Well, I started on Quark, okay. and um, when I was when I was leaving my first full time position at a publisher to go back and study more, that's when InDesign came in, and I switched. But I mean, I've been through every single iteration of InDesign. Do you realize that there are like a lost tribe in the Amazon that no one has found? There are literally people dug in who are still using Quark. Well, I've, I've read, and I don't know if it's true, that Dave Eggers actually writes his novels in Quark because <laughs> it's important to him what the page looks like. Um, and I, I can't think of who it is, but somebody else writes all of their novels in a square format because wow. it just works for them better. So, yeah, and, you know, there's also people who still write on typewriters. So, <laughs> I do love that. I do love typewriters as well. We, so we live in a, in a culture today that's very different than it was when you began designing years ago. Is there more of a pressure today to change and rapidly evolve how you are, how you work as a designer, or is it still possible to sort of develop a style and stay with it over an extended period of time? I think to be a distinctive designer, you have to develop your own style and have it evolve over time because I think what's changed is that there is so much on view there's so much that you can look at. And I say that I look at Pinterest, but there are times when I can't, where I can't look at things because, you know, you like you go on the internet and you look at great design sites and you think everything's already been done. Mm -hmm. Or that actually looks quite like the idea that I had, but they've done it better. Because what you're seeing is everyone's shiny finished work. What you don't get to see is the messy iterative process behind it. And you have to go through that really ugly process to get to the refined bit of work. But when all you're seeing is all of the, you know, like the picture perfect final bits, yeah. Yeah. it's just debilitating. But also you see these these trends come through. And I mean, when Photoshop first came in, people got really excited about those filters that could make things look like you'd done them in pastels, you know, oh. like you just, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And my so heart, my heart hurts. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. So that, but there's still the equivalent of that happening. And you know, then like drop shadows were really big because all of a sudden you could use transparency. So everyone was putting drop shadows on everything and they're generally awful. Um, you know, like all these trends that come through, but I think that that's what happens. I think the difficulty being a young designer now is not following the trends because the software allows you to make something that looks good quite quickly, mm -hmm. but for it to be kind of meaningful or memorable, it has to have more than just the, the look of something good. And let's talk a little bit about book culture. In, in your words, what is book culture? And it seems to me that it's absolutely exploding at the current time, which is a little bit odd because you know everyone says, oh, we live in the digital age, but how do you define book culture? I guess it's um, in the digital age, the recognition 
that books, uh, I guess there was the threat that books were going to become obsolete and then all of a sudden people started to pay attention to them a bit more and started to appreciate the value of the book. And so I guess it's, um, it's the tangible, the physical qualities of books that people like. So the way they're designed, the paper stock, the form of the book, but also the appreciation for, I guess, the slowness of what a book does. Like a book has a single purpose. You open it and you start reading on page one and you move through which is so entirely different than how we interact with our mobile phones, our computers, all the other things. So I think um, there's been a renewed appreciation of, of not just reading, but of, of books and what it means to be bookish or to have books. Um, that's, that's the cultural part of it. It's that we're not taking these objects for granted anymore. They suddenly, they have this new value. And I think that's interesting. So one of the most interesting descriptions that I've heard of modern culture is uh, attention is the currency being traded. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen it in photography of looking at photo essays that have gotten shorter and shorter, stories where a single image is consumed, a film that went from three minutes five years ago is now a 60-second film. So how has digital culture or digital lifestyle affected the ability for us to consume books and has that impacted how you design books? Yeah, I've been reading, I've seen quite a few things lately about how the novella is, you know, the new form, the perfect form for the digital age because, you know, um, well, because it's shorter, basically. But then, you know, people say that and then the, the counter argument is, well, look at Harry Potter. You know, that's a generation or generations of children growing up reading those big doorstop books and... Um, other um, other books, The Luminaries, um, was a book that lots of people were reading only a year or two ago, and that is a huge book. Yeah, that's yeah. it's not comfortable to read in bed. Um, you know, that's <laughs> um, so. I think that a little bit of that is that kind of I, there's a bit of hype around it, but I but I also think that there's this kind of catch cry thing, like the Twitter effect, is that everyone wants to have this thing that they can say that you know, like oh, digital culture is now the age of um, attention is currency, etc. Like there are these great slogans that mm -hmm. you can throw around, and I think it's true in some senses, but not others. I think that more more important than ever is reading a book so it's comfortable to read. So I think, you know, designing the typesetting for a novel, for instance, um, that's not an opportunity to show typographic flair. It's an opportunity to show that you understand that you're not meant to be messing with how someone reads the page. You want them to slip into the world of the novel and not notice the type on the page. Mm. So in some ways, being, being a good designer, a good book designer, is knowing when to be invisible and when not to put your fingerprint all over it. So one of the things that drives me crazy is I, I hear the expression print is dead and being a photographer that still uses a lot of analog techniques, um, I still remember the place and time I was when I first heard the expression film is dead. Yeah. And one, I don't know why we do that, why we draw lines in the sand and say one or the other, but when I hear print is dead, I obviously know that that's not true, but, but there is, there's a certain importance to print. Mm. And let's say that you're a photographer or an artist or any kind of creative, what is it about print that's so critical today that may be different than what it was 50 years ago? I think it's it's to have something, to have your copy of something is really important. So I think there's something about being able to pick up a print and whether it's a photographic print or it's an art print or it's a copy of a book or, or anything, I think that there's something really important about holding that and going, this is my one. Um, to be able to give something to someone as well, to have that tangible thing. I think that that's, that's what's important about print. And there's also something permanent, 
about it once it's printed on the page or whatever surface you've printed it on that's it it ends whereas with digital you can always kind of tweak and refine i mm, mean um, yeah you my website that um, bio that you read out like that changes all the time because i can go in and tinker whenever i feel like it and so whenever you arrive at my website that might be slightly different it's not fixed but if i print it out then that thing is there and that captures a moment in time and there's something really um, comforting about that in some ways it's like that's that's the bit there that I that's where I was at at that point and it stays like that now that's a great point you are also one of the people in the world that I have found who has so dialed in to print on demand what is it about print on demand that you love so much and how is it that you utilize it so much um, it's complete control so, so, you know, as a total control freak, it, um, it allows me to be absolutely the grand poobah of a book. I get to come up with the concept of what I want to do. I get to work with a writer or write it myself, design it, and then do it exactly in the way that I want to do it. And so that's one thing. Control is one thing. I think the second thing is um, that it, it reduces waste, which is something that's really important to me that I, I hate seeing um, bins full of books that can't sell. Like there's something really I walk past on my way to work, I walk past one of those discount bookstores mm. and I was walking in one morning and it was a great day, I was in a really good mood and I walked past and saw a dump bin full of books that I'd designed the cover for and it was just oh. like a box of like these dead books and I looked at it and I just felt incredibly sad. Um, and it's sort of heartbreaking to, to think, you know, like all of that work and, you know, that like the writer's work, the designer's work, the publisher's work, the editor, the printer, the everyone, like the truck driver who trucked them here, all of those people moving that stuff around for it just to sadly lie there in a $1 bin. The great thing about print on demand is, at, as it sounds, you actually only print when someone wants one. And I think that that's an incredible thing. It's also being in Australia where a long way away from... Um, the, the kind of book market in the States and in Europe that's taken off. We're fantastically close to Asia and we have great relationships there, but we're a long way away from those kind of book fairs and things. And so print on demand also means that I can have a market overseas where someone can order a copy of my book and have it sent to them and I don't have to pay international shipping. Mm -hmm. um, it means that I have a wider audience. There's, I mean, there's so many great benefits to to this idea of print on demand that allows me to control what I'm making and how much, but also who gets to see it. How often do you tinker and experiment and make test books? All the time. So before I do a print on demand book, I'll always do a little mock-up for myself, but sometimes I also do a version of it and it comes back to me and I look at it and I think, hmm, I could have done a better job on that. And then I tinker and I'll change it. I might do another edition of it or whatever else. And that's, you know, that's a fantastic thing as well. As much as I just said that the great thing about print is that it's permanent, um, the great thing about print on demand is that it doesn't have to be. Um, so you can kind of, you can, you can wipe over your mistakes a little bit. Well, what's interesting is that is, um, I always suggest to people, regardless of who they are, if they're going to use whatever print on demand to make a test book, and there's a, there's a reluctance. And I think people assume that, you know, they're really attached to the work and they think that, oh, I'll sit down and I'll make this perfect book the first time out. So for me to hear you, who designs full-time for a living and you've done this, say that, look, I experiment and test, make test books all the time, that's a testament to how wonderful it is to have that ability to make a single copy at a time. Yeah. Um, talk about, a little bit about book press. Um, so it's Bookwork Press, book and work. that's um, 
basically I did an exhibition called Books on Demand um, a couple of years ago, 2014, and there were 12 books that I'd made using different print-on-demand suppliers and different levels of print-on-demand quality. And um, I just put them out there because I thought these are, these are my tests, actually, having a look at how we do... Um, how we can use this technology and I put them all out there and someone said to me so like basically you're a small press and I was like I had never really thought about it in that way before but I guess all I really need to do is make a website and put all these books on it then I am a small press so I did that and okay. that's what it is um, so it is I mean it's very experimental it is I, I do do these things and put them out there and they're not perfect and I'm okay with that that's how I get a lot done I mean another question people ask me is how do you do so much and yes. Um, well, I just have to not care at a certain stage and you have to put things out in the world that are imperfect and know that in the time that you could spend fretting on making it perfect, which it'll never be, you could also just be doing the next project. Where do you see the print-on-demand and these things evolving in the next 10 years? Hopefully with a little bit more respect from, um, I guess, um, book critics um, from the the book culture world more mm -hmm. generally yes. I think that would be really nice um, we've discussed before that what's fantastic in Sydney or in Australia is being able to walk into bookstores and they've got a little self-published section and that you know it's that the attitude to self-publishing is changing or small presses is changing that um, they're not seen as a kind of dirty cousin or something as yeah. much anymore yeah, sure. which is great and that's what I'd like to see because I think as well what's funny is that someone would pay me to be a professional designer but if I design it myself for myself then that's seen as a kind of vanity publishing mm -hmm. and that I actually um, through an academic um, context I, I work as a publisher with another colleague and we publish stuff through um, a small imprint called Media Object so when I'm doing that I'm publishing other people's work and their work is seen as legitimate because I've published it but if I publish my own work through the same process it's not given the same respect. Mm -hmm. So there's this really confusing thing where it's like, oh, but you have to have somebody else involved in the process, otherwise it's vanity. So I'm, I'm waiting for that to shift. And then I think once that shifts, we'll open the audience a little bit, a little bit wider because I think people who are picking up these self-published and print-on-demand books are actually getting a really rich and diverse reading experience that other people are possibly missing. The vanity thing drives me crazy. Yeah. And... Uh I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, but to me, if you're paying, if you're a, let's say a photographer, for example, if you're paying a publisher to do your press, you're vanity publishing. But it's, again, not viewed that way. Um, I've taken blur books and created a different imprint for the back, like such and I had one Smog Ranch Editions or something, and people would look at it and say, oh, wow, it's got published by, you know, Smog Ranch Editions. And I'm like, no, that's me. But you could just see the meaning of it change when I said, no, that's me. And it's such a weird, weird sort of thing. But the positive thing is I really do think it's changing because there's so many success stories in self-publishing now that it's really hard to hard to, to uh, basically deny anymore. So knowing what you do now, the level of design where you are, how do you continue to evolve into the future as a designer? Um, sometimes I stop evolving and I don't notice for a little while. And I've just noticed recently that I'd stopped evolving and everything that I've been doing for probably the last three years looks basically the same. And so I have to give myself a little shake up and a little pep talk and say, all right, uh, we need to shift things a bit. And so um, I, I made a promise to myself at the beginning of this year that I wouldn't make another book 
until I'd spent a bit of time doing quite a lot of visual research, which means not necessarily just looking at other books, but looking at posters and going back and looking at some of my really early influences. So I go back through my notebooks and through my sketchbooks and my idea books and um, go out there and start looking for other people's work that I like, go to art galleries, listen to music, just try and try and start from scratch a little bit and I think that um, it doesn't come easily and you've got to force yourself to do it but every now and again you have to kind of take stock and go are we happy with what we're doing here or not and if we're not happy anymore what are we going to do about it I have to talk in you know like yeah. in the kind of royal pronoun because <laughs> um, it's yeah you I think you have to really actively shake yourself up every now and again. So this is a tricky question, and it, based on that, let's say that you, you realize that you're, you, you need to go out and evolve a little bit more, and so you go out and you find an influence. Let's say that you find a book that you haven't seen before, and you think that that's a brilliantly designed book, and I want to I reference that in the work that I do in the future, but how do you reference something without copying it? How do you, because it, it happens all the time, books come out, famous books, and then they're referenced through history. How does that work without walking that fine line? It's a, it's, yeah, it's a really wobbly territory. But I mean, I guess one thing to recognize is that as soon as you kind of say, okay, everything's been done before, and probably that book that you're looking at that you think that's really gorgeous and I love it and I'd love to do something quite similar to that, that's probably based on somebody else's work. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think going back, and this is why learning the history of book design is important because when you start doing that, you go, oh my God, Jan Tischold invented everything. And then you look a little bit further and go, oh, he was basing all of his work on medieval manuscripts. And those monks were doing it because, you know, there was a certain size that they had to work towards. So, you know, I sort of said this to you before, there's only so many things you can do in a rectangle. There's there's certain rules for how things work. So I guess... Um, One way of making it distinctly yours is choosing your own typeface to work with. So don't mimic directly the typeface somebody else has used. Um, And learning how to use a grid. Probably why you like the book design that you've looked at is because they've got a really nice grid that's been set up. So have a look at that. Draw lines across the pages and figure out what grid they're working on and then think about how you could use that. Mm. Um, I think by unpicking what they've done and understanding the thought behind it, then you can work from those ideas as opposed to going, I'm going to put all the elements on the page exactly where they put them. That's mimicking, whereas um, paying homage to, I think, is unpicking it. So it's like, you know, taking the back off a radio to understand how it works rather than just saying, I'd like to make it sound like that sounds. Wow, that is an amazing piece of advice. I never thought about doing it that way. And uh, the grid is something that's been popping up over the past few days spending a lot of time with Gary and watching your two former students who we had working, uh, working with us in the Blur booth designing and watching them use grids was, uh, was eye-opening for me. Let's talk a little bit about d- digital books and the future. We've seen, I remember 15 years ago, you know, hearing, oh, print books are, are going to go away and everyone's going to read on a tablet. Every, every citizen is going to have you know, this official government tablet that their whole life is going to filter through. But we've seen a lot of things sort of come and go. And where do you think the digital book experience is headed? Uh, Where do you think it is now? And then where do you think it is in the future? I think the main problem with the digital book experience is the devices. It's not the books themselves, because often the content is kind of the same. So, um, but the problem has been, what do you read on? So 
everyone said, oh, no one's going to read on their mobile phones. Um, they have to have these tablets. And then the phones started getting bigger and the tablets started getting smaller to the point that, you know, like the iPad mini and the new iPhone are kind of the same. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think the problem is if, you know, if I'm trying to design something for people to look at at a good size, the difference between designing it for a phone or a tablet, it, it changes the surface that I'm working in. So the problem has always been the devices. And I think until they figure out the device, we're not going to have proper ebooks. And I think the, the most popular kind of ebooks have always just been basically a PDF mm -hmm. um, or a streaming of a normal book on a Kindle or something. Because it's pretty much a book, but just lighter. Right. And you, know, you can scan through the pages. That's worked really well, but it hasn't completely replaced print books. Some people still like to read in print. I think that, yeah, until they figure out the device that we all want to read on, it's not going to work. I also think if you look at what happened with um, early web design, every time you arrived at a web page, you'd like start playing music and stuff would oh, yeah. flash and it was yeah. bright green and things would kind of twirl across the screen and it was just a kind of constant epilepsy of visual and like oral overload. And then everyone just calmed down a bit and went, oh, people actually just want to get to the information. I think books are the same. So there's been lots of stuff done with bells and whistles and things. And it's like, well, if you wanted to play a computer game, you'd be doing that. If you want to read a book, you probably just want to do that. So I think that there needs to be a kind of calming down period while mm -hmm. everyone just decides what it is that you want to do. You just described my first sight. The, 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 everything you described, I did. I had a passport circling, spinning in from the side. That was my sort of about page. And yeah, it was at the time we were like, this is the greatest thing in history. And then about eight weeks later, we were like, oh my God, what have we done? It's really annoying. Yeah, it, totally annoying. And I'm sure it would take f five minutes to load even today. Um, what about, let's, what about illustrated digital books because like I have a Kindle and I read books on it all the time but one of the big mysteries to me is the illustrated digital book mm -hmm. blurb has the ability where you have like audio and video embedded in there and I've seen that work relatively well but it also when I go to let's say art schools and I ask people who in the room here is, is interested in making a digital illustrated book no one raises their hand but yet at the same time we've been we're being told that's the future of the book that you're gonna have all these experiences yeah, I, look, again, I think it depends on the content. So I can see, like, if, for instance, you're talking about a science textbook. <laughs> sorry, there's a baby in my house. Yeah, yeah. Who, who, who are we hearing in the background? Yeah, um, that's Raf. He's five weeks old. And um, he's just, yeah, having a little bit of a testing out of his lungs at the moment. I think he wants an illustrated digital book. I think he totally does. Um, and maybe I'll make him one one day. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I guess... So if you're looking at a science textbook and there's a company called Touch Press based in the UK and they've done the most incredible illustrated animated periodic table of elements, I would have been really interested in chemistry if I'd had access to that book. Okay. It's amazing, look it up. That's a brilliant way to use illustration animation in a book. Um, but I think, you know, like a novel, don't mess with it. Don't add audio, don't add illustrations to it. So, you know, some kids' books, great. You might want to do some fun little animations and interactions with them. But I think, again, like if you want to play a game, play a game. If you want to read a book, read a book. There are some experiences that I think are interesting. I know that Google Creative Lab has been working with visual editions to do mm -hmm. some interesting stuff. And uh, you have to be really committed to that, though. Like you have to really want to engage with all the elements of that kind of book. And sometimes you just want to sit down and read. Yes. 
for sure. Okay, uh, this is sort of a self-serving question, but let's focus on photography books in general. For myself and for 90% of the people I know in the world who are possessed with making photography books but have absolutely no design chops or history, is there a, a resource, is there a suggestion, something that you have that might basically save us from ourselves? Um, look, other than obviously working with the designer, that's, you know, <laughs> exactly. that, that's, that's a great start. But um, if you don't have the kind of resources or the access to do that, then I think, um, again, my, one of the things I do a lot is thumbnailing, which is basically mm. sketching things out. So I will take a book and I will sit down and I will literally draw it. So I'll draw a rectangle and a line down the middle of it, and that's the two pa- the double page spread. And then I will draw where every element on the page goes, and that's how I figure out where the grid is. And in doing that, I have to think about where's the photograph, where's the typography, if there is any on the page. What's the pattern of the way the images are laid out? Because there will be a pattern. There, there'll be some something in there that you can find. So I guess just unpicking other work that you like is the best way to learn and looking, like just going into bookstores and looking as much as you can. And libraries are great. Go into a library, it's free, and you don't get in trouble for photographing the books. That's a great point. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I am always amazed. Every time I see your name and I see the work that you're doing and the books that you're doing, I am impressed and thrilled. And uh, it was really a, a pleasure to be able to come here and spend a little time talking with you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. And we'll see you on the next trip to Sydney. Absolutely.